I can't believe it's day four already. What about you? Isn't it lovely waking up and looking out and seeing blue sky and the sun's out? Of course, the big thing is, did you remember to pack the sunglasses? Well done. Impress. What about the suntan lotion? Even more impressive, here are people that have planned. Well, today, as you know, we're going and digging deeper into Malachi. It's been great, hasn't it? Fascinating, getting deep into some theology, exploring where Malachi fits into this big picture of God. And uh, before we get Gerard on and we pray for Gerard, we're going to just explore a little thing that's been launched over the course of spring harvest on both this site and, and, the, uh, my, uh, and the Skegness site. We're exploring and launching the Bible, uh, the viral Bible. And uh, it's part of an initiative called Bible Fresh. I guess most of your churches are involved in some way in this thing called Bible Fresh, exploring how we can get the Bible uh, to be more confident and appreciative of the Bible. We've used the 400th anniversary um, of the printing and distribution of the King James Version to celebrate it. And Spring Harvest, together about 120 other agencies have been partnering in Bible Fresh. Well, a big part of Bible Fresh is something called Viral Bible. Let's just watch this video, give you a little bit of insight of what the Viral Bible is about. Okay, so this is the moment. In this tent, there are 10 Viral Bibles. It could be under your seat. Have a look. Who's got a viral Bible? Wave it around. Maybe you want to stand up if you've got a, ah, a viral Bible there. Okay, can you stand up if you've got a viral Bible? Let me explain what happens. You've seen it on the video. So, great. let's give a welcome, shall we, to Gerard as he comes. And uh, we're going to pray. And uh, I thought it would be helpful just to pray a, a prayer from one of Gerard's prayers in his book, Twitter, Twitterlages. Twitterges. Twitterges, sorry. Well done, Good man. Twitterges. <laughs> Let's pray together. The breath of God moves the waters. The wind makes a way through the waves. So may the Spirit sculpt my route to freedom. Mm. Yeah. Lord, this morning, sculpt the route for freedom for yes, Gerard God. as he speaks. Yes, sculpt the route to freedom for us as we listen. Mm. We ask it in Jesus' name. Mm. Amen. Amen. Uh, thank you, Steve. Uh, it's uh, Twitter G's, which is like liturgy with a twit in it. And anybody who's just thought that's what we get every Sunday, you are not allowed to think that, okay? Uh, wow. Uh, I, uh, I don't know about you, but having uh, listened to Abby's reading, I'm even scared, and I've prepared this thing. <laughs> a lot of material, a lot of stuff to, uh, to cover. I actually want us to just take a moment of reflection. I'm going to read a, a poem for you. Um, I wanted to end with this yesterday, and I, as usual, ran, a, ran over the end of the runway, often, often uh, do that. But I wanted to read it now because I want us to have a bit of a pause moment, a bit of reflection, uh, before we launch into this. We're kind of halfway through our journey uh, through uh, Malachi, uh, halfway through our exploration of what these texts meant or what we believe they meant in Malachi's context and what we can learn from them uh, in ours. And we're going to hit some important stuff this morning. We're going to hit some stuff that, that has been a source of uh, difficulty for a lot of people and is a source of difficulty in a lot of our communities. Uh, we're going to hit some stuff where it's really important that we 
sense what God's intentions for us are and don't misinterpret his intentions. So uh, I'd love to, let me just read this for you. The, the words will be on the screen, but uh, feel free to read them from there as I, you know, uh, as I read. But feel free also, if you want to just close your eyes and listen, this is a prayer about how God receives us, how he uses us, how his relationship with us leads to our fulfillment. Let me read these words for you. May the gifts that God has buried in your soul be fuel for the fire of the Spirit, treasure for the temple of your God, colors for the collage of your worship. May the love that he has sown in you bear fruit in words that work like wonders in your worries, in songs that sing the wounded into safety, in canvases that capture God's true rainbow in moments gluing broken hearts to freedom, in space that breaks the tyranny of fear. May the passion God has for you find a mirror in a heart unafraid to receive him, in a mind unembarrassed to know him, in a body unashamed to embrace him, in a life undone enough to give him room. May your hopes be a home for him and your imaginings invite him. May your dreams declare his presence with you and your poems paint his praise. May his will be your wallpaper and his worship your window on the world. And may the music of your heart be his heart beating. And on this road of liberation, on your journey into wholeness, on the pathways of his promises, in the wanderings of your worship, may God, your God, tabernacle with you. What we're going to hit this morning is Malachi addressing issues of covenant faithfulness, issues to do with law. So we're going to talk about law this morning and the function of God's law amongst the people and the meaning of covenant. And I want us to get the sense, uh, the, the sort of under pinning sense here that this is about God's presence with his people. It's about God's desires for his people. It's about God's intentions for his people. But because it's about law, because it's about covenant, because there are questions of faithfulness and betrayal, it's heavy stuff. And sometimes we get the wrong end of it. And sometimes we feel that we're in the kind of relationship with God that is more about the law court than the living room. And the kind of relationship with God where he's no longer our father but has become our judge. And that is difficult. So I want us to try and get the sense that this is about God's journey with his people. This is about God's presence, about God tabernacling with his people, about God walking in fellowship with his people. So Malachi wants to talk to the people about the ways in which he sees them breaking or violating or falling short of God's covenant. And he hits three issues. Let's say right up front what the three key issues are. And the, the, the verses are marked there as to, you know, where, where which bits of the, the passages that were read to us uh, cover this. Three key issues, divorce and some associated ideas around marriage. The whole issue of marriage and divorce in the community of uh, Judah and what are what should the, the the approach to marriage be for these people and how have they moved from that then a whole section about social justice and that 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 uh, verse where it says yes my the, the my messenger is going to come but when he's going to come he's going to bring judgment and he's going to deal with some issues about how you treat people he's going to deal with some issues about how vulnerable people in your society are treated. And then the only bit of Malachi that anybody ever preaches on, the tithing stuff. <laughs> the storehouses of heaven. Or as one very famous Bible teacher who's quite conservative and very careful about what he says, managed to quote at Spring Harvest a few years ago, bring the whole tithe into the whorehouse, which was <laughs> <laughs> followed by, I can't believe I just said that. It was a great moment. <laughs> In Spring Harvest History, and you can probably still get the uh, DVD if you'd like to see that. <laughs> no, I can't do that. It wouldn't be fair. wouldn't be fair. <laughs> but the whole package about what this issue of tithing is for 
the people of Israel. So we are going to look a little bit about these three things. There is some fantastic stuff here. There is some real learning for us in these three areas. But before we get to those, the, the, the specific kind of charges that Malachi brings, we need to know what, this is, what underpins this. And what underpins this is this, the notion of covenant. Malachi addresses the people on behalf of the covenant God. And everything he says to them about law, everything he says to them about their behavior falling short, all the issues he raises with them are to do with God's covenant with them. Covenant is just a nice old-fashioned biblical word for contract, effectively. There is a contract between God and Israel. We talked yesterday about how Moses brought a group of people out of Egypt who had been slaves and he, he, uh, God gave the law, uh, and Moses passed on all these laws that actually got quite complicated in the end because they were structuring a whole nation. And the basis of the law was covenant. God is saying, if you will do these things, if your lives will reflect who I am, if you will live according to these principles and these rules, you will reflect my character. And then the world will see what I'm like. Hence, Malachi, even all those years later, is saying... How will the nations see what God is like unless they see what God is like in your behavior? So God is saying, I want a people on the earth whose, whose lives reflect my character. And the basis of my character is covenant faithfulness. So you get all the stuff about if you live this way, you'll experience blessing, shalom, peace, prosperity in all areas of your life. You will experience a social harmony. You'll experience life in its fullness because you're living according to the laws I give you. It's a kind of contract of covenantal faithfulness. And because uh, um, uh, this will become very apparent in a moment anyway, but it's worth saying, it's a kind of a marriage contract. It is actually God marrying his people, saying what's the basis of our relationship? How will we measure our faithfulness to one another? And basically, God says, you will measure your faithfulness to me by obedience. I will measure my faithfulness to you by blessing. These will be the signs that we are faithful to one another. And in order to understand, we're going to have to do some big thinking here, and we haven't got all forever to do it, but we have to understand that what, what Malachi is hitting on is to do with the understanding of what the law is for Israel. And so we do have to do a little bit of going back and forth. And let's go back to the beginning. And we did this yesterday. We said, okay, who was it that Moses brought out of Egypt? A bunch of people who'd never worshipped anything other than idols because they were Egyptian in their religious commitment because they were slaves. What's the other thing that is true of a slave community? Slaves don't have to make decisions. <laughs> they certainly don't make laws. Because slaves have no choice. By definition, as a slave, you are inside a culture in which somebody else has made the rules. Now, at one level, that is oppression. Of course it is. It's not, you know, nobody thinks slavery isn't oppressive. Of course it is. But at another level, it's like a blinking holiday. Because you don't make moral choices. You don't have to make moral choices. Because you're in the bit of the culture where all your choices are made for you. That is the definition of slavery. You have no choice. So you bring a group of people who have been a slave culture and you form them into a nation and all of a sudden they have to make a whole series of moral choices because they've got a blank piece of paper to write on. So it, when you look at all that early stuff, all that fascinating and sometimes rather tedious stuff, let's be honest, through Deuteronomy and Leviticus, you look at all these different laws, and you think, what's mildew got to do with anything? <laughs> Who cares about mildew? Well, a group of people traveling with their children and animals through the desert care about mildew. You know, we've, had, we have some, we've got some laws and restrictions here on this site, haven't we? because we're all being asked to wash our hands and stuff, because we've got 6,000 people living in proximity to one another, and because a few years ago, some of those people got sick, and within 48 hours, 2,000 people were sick. And you're like, why should I wash my hands coming into the big top? <laughs> yeah. What's, what's washing my hands got to do with worship? Are you telling me that God will not approve of me unless my hands are clean? Are you judging me? saying I've got dirty hands. No, we're just protecting this community. 
Because a community living in the way that we live here is more vulnerable than you are at home. And a community traveling through the desert is vulnerable. And a community traveling through the desert who aren't used to making decisions because the decisions have all been made for them are particularly vulnerable. So the law is about actually, hey guys, we've got to construct something here. We're building community. Ultimately, we're building a nation. Of course we have to talk about these things. So God is speaking order into the chaos of this slave nation, speaking order. And covenant is about these are laws to protect and bless you. In a sense, and this is oversimplifying, but it'll help us. (laughs) In a sense, the laws that God gives are simply the boundaries within which it is possible for his people to be his people. It's the boundaries within which it is possible for them to prosper. So, And we still do this. We pretend that we don't. We like to pretend we don't have laws. We like to pretend we're all free. But we do. We have safe and sensible boundaries. We have places where it's safe to ride a bicycle, except in London, where there isn't anywhere it's safe to ride a bicycle. (laughs) But we try and pretend that it is. But I lived in uh, Amsterdam for four years, and I tell you, it's amazing how, how, you know, because everybody rides bikes. Little five-year-old kids ride their bikes to school because we've created a, a safety for that. You know, the, the one group of people who aren't safe in Amsterdam are people driving cars. Because it's brilliant. If, if you have an accident in Amsterdam and somebody on a bicycle gets hurt, it's your fault. Doesn't matter if the bicycle has triangle wheels, triangular wheels, no bell, and is being driven by somebody who's drunk, it's still your fault. Because the law is created, to, it's fantastic. But it's all about protection and uh, safety. And, uh, you know, I don't know, you might think this would be a silly sign unless you happen to live in a place where the water's dangerous to drink, in which case you would be grateful for it. I found some other ones. I don't know uh, whether this is ever useful to you. I don't, you might find it useful at times. I don't know. You might consider occasionally in church you'd like to put this one up. <laughs> and uh, this one I absolutely love because I just want to live in a place where this sign is meaningful. This says, for the next 150 kilometers, there are camels, ostriches, and kangaroos crossing the road. And they always come in threes, and it's always one after the other. (laughs) Fantastic. I I would love to live somewhere where that's likely to happen to me. I think it's very, very cool. Uh, On the other hand, I don't particularly want to live where this one is. um... (laughs) I tried to... (laughs) I tried to find out whether this was a genuine roadside or a joke, and I'm not quite a roadside or a joke. I'm not quite sure. But it's all about we're, we're, we, we put these signs up to create warnings. We create boundaries for people. We say you're in a place where you need to be aware of these things. I thought this one was good because it clearly is made for people who don't quite understand how things work. It actually says persons procuring or concealing escape of prisoners are subject to prosecution and imprisonment. Well, <laughs> why wouldn't they be? In which culture do you actually get a civic award for helping prisoners to escape? It seems rather obvious to me, but clearly they've had some issues with people. And then I found this one, and you'll love this because I didn't take this photograph in my head, but it ought, I ought to have done. <laughs> and I, you know, we, sometimes we need to protect it from... Uh, and then, I, oh, there's so many of these. It's fun, isn't it? And this one I love because this is from a beach in uh, New Zealand, on the South Island of New Zealand. And I've never seen, it's such a complex set of warnings. It's brilliant. It's a beach where there's a glacier that comes right down to the beach. So it's basically saying any one of the following four things can happen to you on this beach. Either the rocks can fall on you, or you can fall off the rocks, or the glacier is going to fall into the sea and make a wave that will drown you, or the glacier is going to fall on you. And it leaves you only with one question. Why would you stay? (laughs) Why would you spend any time at all on this particular beach when all these things are going to, or any one of these things might happen to you? And uh, do you you get a badge if you've been subject to all four? Do you get some kind of... uh... But it's warnings, isn't it? And of course, the reason these warnings are there often is because, I mean, they're warnings because we genuinely want to protect people, but they're also warnings because... We don't want someone coming to say to us, why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you tell me? 
And it's really interesting that when we interpret God's laws of, as restrictive, and, oh, God, yeah, yeah, God, you're so boring. You don't want us to have any fun. We don't think about the other side of it, which is the, 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 the people who might go through kind of all kinds of horrible relational things, and they end up really hurt and difficult, and they come back and say, why didn't you tell us? Why didn't somebody tell me that that decision would get me here? Why didn't somebody tell me that there was an alternative? And the laws are about saying, I want, to, I want you to know what, what leads to health and, and prosperity and what doesn't. What leads to, to, to a, a vibrant, harmonious community and what doesn't. And yes, they are sometimes oversimplified. And yes, there are always exceptions. But broadly speaking, the laws of God are saying to the community, there's a parameters within which you can live. I kind of like, this is not a particularly dramatic or funny sign, but I find it a really, really interesting one. Because it's the sign you put on a, on a place that is a bit narrower than the road you're used to. And it's just saying, if you're this wide, I don't mean you, sorry, I mean the truck you're driving. Sorry, don't, <laughs> don't, get, don't take this the wrong way. <laughs> if you're driving a vehicle that is, that is 10 feet wide, this road, you're gonna find it a bit restrictive. You're going to find it a bit narrow. And because it's too narrow for you, you're not going to get through it. And I actually think that, personally, I find that, I think God was being really, really kind <laughs> to the, because he was saying, we're going to have to have some restrictive. So I'm going to give you all these restrictions up front. I'm going to give you all the narrowness up front because I want you to prosper on this journey. I want you to do well as a people. I want you to stay together. But let's agree together. Let's recognize together that we will not prosper as a culture. We will not have a harmonious, shalomful culture unless we recognize that that involves some restrictions. It involves making choices. It involves living in a narrower way than we might otherwise live. And that's the basis of covenant law. So Malachi comes and says, God has given you these, this, this covenant law and you keep finding ways to slip out of it. You keep finding ways to test the boundary. How will you experience the wonder of the presence of God if you keep testing him? This is Old Testament, remember. We're not pretending that this is how God's law functions now. We're going to do some work in a minute. We're going to go through our little Jesus window and we're going to think about what the law means now. And if you don't think the law is different now from then, then you've missed most of the New Testament. Because most of what Jesus and Paul spend their time doing is saying it's different now. But this is how it was for Malachi. The people had been given this covenant relationship with God. And he hits on specific issues. And the issues he, he hits on are there for a couple of reasons. The obvious reason is these are the issues where things are going wrong in the culture. The obvious reason is Malachi looks around and this is what strikes his concern. These are the issues that he senses God wants to raise with people. But in another sense, these are also the core issues that actually define uh, covenant. So he talks about marriage. And uh, if you look through those few verses, you'll see that Malachi talks about marriage in three ways. He accuses the Jewish men, the, the um, uh, the text is addressed at the, at the men. Uh, it's actually obliquely addressed at the priests in specifically. We talked about that yesterday. But it's the whole community and the priests in a very special way. And he accuses them of three things. He accuses them of marrying women who are from outside the Jewish community and therefore worship idols. He accuses them of being unfaithful to their wives. And he accuses them of divorcing their wives uh, on a whim just because they're bored and sorry but if you if you're going to pretend to me that nobody does that these days that's fine but they do divorcing simply because they want to get out of that so he accuses them of those three things and he says those three things cut into the heart of how where marriage is essentially three things are present here for um, Malachi. The first is that marriage is a picture of faithfulness in covenant. So there's this interesting thing in the text. When, when, when Malachi comes as the messenger of the covenant and starts to talk about marriage, you're not quite sure whether he's talking directly about marriage or is using it as a metaphor for the people and God. Well, you don't need to be sure because he's doing both. 
And he is addressing issues of mar- marital faithfulness, but he's saying that also is a picture of your covenant. And he's basically saying, if you cannot be faithful in this most basic of covenants, this is Malachi talking to Israel, this is not me talking to you. He is saying to them, if you cannot be faithful in this most basic of covenants, how can we be confident that you're being faithful in your covenant relationship with God? So it is a, a picture of uh, covenant. And it reflects this commitment to God's wider covenant. I want to come back on that in a second. But it's like a reflection. If, this, if in this picture I see you trying to escape from covenant, what do I think you're doing more widely? And thirdly, and this is very significant because we're talking about a, a, a fairly, we're still talking about a fairly ancient culture. We're still talking about the Jewish, the Old Testament dispensation. We're not talking about a culture that has been through some of the changes and enlightenments, if, if you like, that, that we have. But Malachi specifically refers to marriage as an issue of justice and protection for women. Because women in his culture are bereft once they are divorced because they have no property, no protection. The women and children are protected by the faithfulness of marriage. And he raises that as a specific issue. He says you are, in fact, there's this really strange phrase which scholars say is one of the most difficult phrases to translate in the whole of the Old Testament because nobody knows what it means. But he says, it's where he's, it's, it's in the same verse where it says, God hates divorce. Nobody knows where it's actually God's, whether Malachi is saying God hates divorce or whether it's Malachi saying God doesn't like it when through hatred you divorce. Nobody knows. And he talks about your clothes, be, you are clothed with violence. And he's saying that these men are clothed with violence. Now, I don't, we don't know. Maybe he is talking about the fact that in many cases there is an undercurrent of violence in these relationships. Maybe he is, but maybe he's saying actually that the act of divorce in that culture is a violent act because it pushes someone into poverty. It pushes the women and children into a place of poverty while you retain all the property. Um, but he's basically very critical of the men who, for whom where, where divorce is an act of injustice. Well, let's come back to that idea that the covenant of marriage reflects the wider covenant with God. What's really interesting about this for us, and, and again, to understand why the covenant of marriage is so much a part of Jewish culture, so much a part of Jewish culture that in more contemporary, or as in more recent Jewish tradition, a, a Jewish woman who arranges three good marriages is guaranteed eternal bliss. It's actually an unfortunate analogy, but it's the same deal as the jihadists get for blowing people up. If you, if, as a Jewish woman, if you fix three successful marriages, God just throws open the gates and says, come in. Because it is considered to be such a blessing to have helped three couples into a healthy long-term marriage. It's considered to be a blessing, which is why Jewish women, no offense, are so good at that. And we need more of them, actually. If you talk to some of the single people in your church, they're not running away from the people who would help them arrange marriages. They're like, bring it on. (laughs) Why not? Because the community is able to actually help people into good relationships. And why shouldn't a community do that? Not as an act of interference and messing around, but as an act of grace. Why shouldn't the community be helping people to form lasting uh, relationships. But in the Jewish culture, marriage is absolute century. Now, here is why. The slaves come out of Egypt. They've never had any social structures. They've never been asked to take responsibility. They've never exercised any real social uh, leadership. Even making decisions is something that's new for them. So there's a whole bunch of education to happen. For the next thousand plus years, the home is the primary institution of education and socialization for the Jewish people. They are not sending their children off to comprehensive schools every day. It's everything is in the home. Not only that, not only is the home the place where children are educated, the home is where worship happens. The home is where we learn to honor God. In, in Jewish culture, there's a brilliant thing that happened several years ago now when the BBC did a, a documentary. They wanted to show the life of different faith communities in the UK. And they wrote to various leaders, the Archbishop of Canterbury and the, uh, Archbishop, the Catholic uh, Bishop of Westminster and various other people. They wrote to these geezers and they said, give us the, 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 the location of a really good church or synagogue or temple or whatever. And we want to bring our cameras, we want to do a kind of fly on the wall documentary of the life of your church. 
Uh, actually, as an aside, there was a lovely thing that one of the uh, comments that was overheard by a member of the crew at a particularly large uh, church called St. Joseph's in Liverpool, um, which this comment didn't make it into the documentary, but they recorded it anyway, was when one of the parishioners was overheard to say, if Jesus knew half of what went on at St. Joseph's, he'd turn in his grave. <laughs> which is like which is like such a highly concentrated form of theological error that you, you could feed a nation with it, couldn't you? It's, like, it's great, wonderful. So basically, they wrote to the different leaders and, they, and the Archbishop of Canterbury said, go to this church, it's great. And they, that people gave them different ideas. And the chief rabbi, brilliant, 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 wrote this amazing letter back to the BBC because they asked him for a good synagogue. And he wrote back and said, we'd love you to come to one of our synagogues and I can tell you a good one to visit but it won't show you anything. If you want to see the Jewish community at worship, you have to come into our homes. Beautiful. And the Archbishop of Canterbury's going, wish I'd said that. That's good. But he wasn't being facetious and he wasn't being difficult. He was actually telling the truth because that's where worship happens, in the home. Everything is in the home. Instruction of children, worship. The whole essence of Israel is home-based. So when, when God starts to speak to Moses about the laws, securing that home is huge for them. It's the biggest deal because this really is the building block of the culture. There really is nowhere else to turn. So creating a home that is honoring to God, etc., is really, really important for the Jewish people. Again, I am not translating that to now. We have to do that in a different way. But for Malachi, that was the essence so when something comes to destabilize that, it's a very serious business for them. So he, uh, he holds them accountable. He says, we, we, th- this structure is about justice for women and children. It's about creating homes. There's a, uh, a verse, sorry, I haven't got the verse. There's a verse where he says, if you're unfa- God gave you the wife of youth and gave you a wife in order that you might have godly children because we're dependent on you, he's saying. We're dependent on these homes to create the nation we believe God has called us, uh, called us to be. So it's a vital aspect of life. And, and essentially, Malachi is saying, you are not being faithful to the promises. You're not being faithful to covenant. I've got to keep saying this is Malachi talking to the Jewish people, that it's not me talking to you at Spring Harvest. And the whole purpose of this morning is not that a bunch of people are sitting there thinking, oh my goodness, uh, because we've we got to talk about what, now, what happens now in a moment. But for Malachi, it's a crisis, in, it's a national crisis because he sees this as such a crucial thing. That's actually why the bit in there about you're allowing your men to marry foreigners, which seems to me to be the narrowest part of the track, <laughs> that just seems to me to be pretty darn restrictive, really. You can't fall in love with a foreigner. Um, the reason that's there is because if the home is the basis of worship, And if the rituals of worship are established in the home, how will you have rituals of worship if you can't agree on who God is? That's what Malachi is saying. Again, that's what he's saying. But how will you in your home have have the rituals of worship? How will you celebrate the Passover and say to the youngest child, you ask these questions and we say, we were brought out of Egypt. If in fact that's not your commitment together. And the, the way that does translate into the contemporary world is there's a lot of people will tell you, a lot of people who work a lot in pastoral ministry and do a lot of marriage guidance and all that stuff will tell you that the most important thing to, to, to make a relationship long-lasting isn't how much money you earn and it isn't how many houses you've got between you and it isn't all about financial security. The most important thing is that you share the same fundamental convictions about the nature of the world. When we come together with shared convictions, it does get us through a whole bunch of difficulties and Malachi is simply saying if you if you if the home can't agree on who God is how will the home be the center of worship so it's an important thing for them it's a difficult thing for us to deal with but it's an important thing for them okay we'll we'll come back to marriage in a moment when we go through our Jesus window but sticking with Malachi for a moment issues of justice are raised Uh, how you treat specific groups are named widows, orphans, foreigners living amongst you. How do you treat these people? Because these are the people who have no inheritance in Israel. They have no 
property rights. I mean, I've lived through this. My, I'm the child of a divorced family. My parents separated in, the, uh, in about 1970. That's how old I am. Uh, I was very young at the time. Uh, and uh, divorced a few years later. And at the time, uh, we traveled all over the world. We, we, my father's job kept changing. We moved a lot. The only place we owned a property was a cottage in Southern Ireland. Lovely place. We all loved it. We, we'd lived there for a while, and then we went back every summer. But in 1970 in Ireland, they still hadn't passed a law protecting women in divorce settlements. So all property, by definition, belonged to the man. That's just how it was, that you couldn't, as a wife, you had no rights in terms of property. So when the divorce went through, this home simply became my father's home and the family hadn't. And so literally my dear mother went through, she was left with four children. She had to go and find a job, get a council flat because she had absolutely nothing. Now that's, we, we all know that that's unjust, <laughs> but that is how it was. So Malachi is saying to these men, do you understand the justice implication of the decisions you're making? Do you understand what it does to uh, people. And he talks about widows and orphans and foreigners. How do you look after the people who have no rights in your culture? And of course, there's this really interesting thing for the Jews, and God says this to them through the prophets once or twice, very significantly. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. Remember that you once were the dispossessed. And how you treat the dispossessed now is a mark of your character is a measure of your faithfulness to me. So uh, Malachi talks about uh, justice, provision for the poor and dispossessed, guarding against abuses of power and privilege. So those of you in the culture, Malachi says, who are given power, who are given possessions, who have an inheritance, who have authority, make sure that in your exercising of authority, in your uh, holding of those possessions, you are thinking of those who fall outside of those limits. It's a very primitive culture. It's not a democracy. It's a very primitive culture in the sense that it doesn't have a lot of the stuff that we have as a safety net. But fundamentally, it says, those who have wealth and power and authority are responsible for making sure that those who haven't are looked after and are not left vulnerable. And Malachi says, you haven't done that. So when this Messiah that you keep praying for comes, you keep crying out to God and saying, where are you, God? When are you coming? Malachi says, when the messenger of the covenant comes, he's going to hold you account for these things. He's going to hold you to account for issues of justice in society. And then the third one, before we come to look at it, this from a more contemporary angle, the third one is the lovely, lovely question of tithing. Um, magnificent uh, question for us to uh, talk about. What does tithing do within this covenantal view of the law? It established covenant responsibility as the cornerstone of personal finance. The best way to understand tithing is to hear God say, I get the first bit. Because we always say, oh, God gets the whatever percentage, but it's not about the percentage, it's about the priority. That's why the term is used throughout Scripture, first fruits. The first fruits come to God because it's a way of remembering that all good things come from God. So for the Jews, tithing is a way of just coming back to God every time when there's been a harvest, when you've won the lottery. No, they didn't do the lottery, did they? When you've got to come back to God and say, I recognize God. We were slaves in Egypt. We had nothing. Whatever we have now comes from you. And we give to recognize that. It cuts into our possessiveness. It cuts into our sense of ownership. Because we say, we want to, before we enjoy ownership, we want to recognize our dependence on God. And that's what tithing does. It puts God first. It fosters trust as the basis of security. Because what does God say through Malachi? Bring the whole tithe in, etc., etc. And see what I'll do. I will open the storehouses of heaven. And then what will happen? Your crops will be healthy. Your harvest will be great. Why? Because the basis of the relationship is trust. I want you to know, God, that I am trusting you. I want you to know, God. I mean, that's why one of the, I mean, we, we do this thing, my, my, Chrissy and I and our family, we do this thing that is uh, called in some circles living by faith, in others living by hints, but it's somewhere in between the two. <laughs> and we constantly pray about that. We are constant, and we, we have a whole team who are now doing that. 
got a whole team, some really young families who are putting their lives on the line and trusting God. And we constantly pray about God's provision. And, and it's actually, it's a, it's a good place to be. It keeps you very sharp. It keeps you very focused. It's great. But the tragedy of that is that most of our churches are full of people who think they're not living by faith. They think they're living by their work of their hands. They think their salary is to do with their work, not to do with the blessing of God. Because so we think that this is mine. This, this is mine. I've earned this. How many of you? I won't. Don't put your hands up. It'll be embarrassing. But how many of us have used that expression, I've earned this? Or our favorite one, I deserve a good holiday. I could go to Scunthorpe or Southport, but I'm going to Sandals in Bermuda because I deserve it. Because I have worked for this. And it's kind of true in a way. But Old Te- the Old Testament says, actually, do you? Do you deserve it? Or is it just that you happen to live in a part of the world where there are jobs and there is prosperity? Do the people who will go to bed tonight unable to feed their children deserve that? Is that the result of their absence of work? No. It's to do with the fact that they're in a different place. So there is a something about gratitude that comes to God and says, God, I did work for this and there is some kind of connection there. But ultimately, every blessing I want to say thank you for. Everything is about my dependence on you. And God wants us to work, walk in trust uh, with him. And then the, the other reason why tithing is really important in the Old Testament, and this is very important in the Mosaic, the, the laws of Moses and the Levitical thing and stuff, is it takes the idea of covenant, this big picture idea of, of our relationship with God, and it beds it down in the everyday world. If you want people to think about something every day, make it to do with money. Because money is the only thing we think about every day. I'm not being critical, but it is. Money is the thread that runs through everything. Whereas, you know, we might think about our relationship with God a couple of times a week or whatever, I don't know. But we are constantly thinking about can we afford stuff. We're constantly thinking. So if, if, if we can take our covenantal relationship with God, this is again Malachi talking to the Jewish people. If you can take that sense of God's covenant and bed it into your finances, bed it into your sense of, of how you're doing financially, then it, it means that on a daily basis you'll remember God because it'll be woven. It's like a rhythm woven into your life. It's not that every once in a while you go to the temple and think about God. It's that every day you're thinking about God because the responsibility, I mean, it got a bit silly in the end. Jesus came and said, you guys are a bit silly because they were tithing their herbs. I mean, tie, go home, try and tie the jar of oregano. <laughs> it's a pretty minute, minute bit of counting, isn't it? And it got a bit silly. But the, the way they got there was from this principle that everything. So if I'm, if I'm walking across the site and one of you comes up to me and gives me 20 pounds, feel absolutely free. It would be, I mean, we could try it as an experiment. No, let's not. But... <laughs> But if I'm, or if I'm walking across the site and I find 10 pounds on the floor, if I'm part of Malachi's community, I immediately think that's a pound for God. That's a quid for God. And it's the first thing I think. Before I think that's nine quid for me or whatever. My first reaction. So if I have a good harvest, my first thought is I must make an offering. So it's that idea of, of, of bedding the covenant into your everyday life. Bedding it into your cycle of sowing your fields and harvesting them. Bedding it into your buying and selling of animals. Bedding it into everything that you do so that you're continually reminding yourself that you have this covenant relationship. That's what tithing was for in Israel. And Malachi's stress with the people, Malachi's frustration with them isn't that God isn't getting enough money. His frustration isn't that because you're not tithing, God's broke. It's not how it works. He's not saying God wants more of your money. Actually, what he's saying is God wants more of you. But it's remarkable how that more of you is so often measured in terms of how you handle your possessions. So Malachi is saying, give, pay God the whole tithe as a sign to him that you're giving him your whole self. You're not holding back. You're giving. You're, You're actually saying, God, I am yours. I am dependent on you. These gifts do come from you. I am trusting you. So it's a symbol of what's going on in your heart. And to be honest, I'll be really honest here, you can, you can denounce me as a heretic if you want to. I think it's a clumsy and unfortunate symbol. I don't think it's the best one, but it's the best we've got. 
I don't think it's best to measure our spirituality in terms of what we do with our money, but it is one way of testing how deeply our commitment to God's covenant goes into our daily life. And for the Jews, it was an important way. And of course, for them, it wasn't always money. It was actually bringing sheaves of barley and all the rest of it. But it's a test. How deeply does this faith commitment cut into my business plans? How deeply does it cut into what I'm doing? And of course, famously, and you'll, some of you will know this from your reading and stuff, I mean, there was no um, income tax system. This was also the only thing that people did to put money into the, the national interest kind of thing. So those three things then, marriage as a sign of covenantal faithfulness, as a measure of covenantal faithfulness, as a way of providing stability in the culture and protection for women and children, the covenant of marriage. Justice for those in the culture that are vulnerable, foreigners, widows, orphans, those without possessions. How are you providing for them in terms of justice and then tithing as a measure of your commitment as a measure of your recognition of covenant covering everything to do with possessions and money what's interesting about those three things of course and here we're going to start moving to the new testament what's interesting about the three issues that malachi chooses to address is they address the three issues of money sex and power they address the three fundamentals and it, uh, this is a, uh, I don't know if you know Richard Foster's book, Money, Sex and Power. It is a brilliant, brilliant book. It is very, very good. And Foster basically says, Foster was the author of Celebration of Discipline, uh, very into the idea of, you know, developing in our life of prayer and stuff. And he basically addresses the issue that these three topics, how we handle money, what kind of control sex has over us or vice versa, and how we handle power are the three perennial abiding issues in our spirituality and all of our growth is actually about how this gets how these three get dealt with and it's really interesting that Malachi centuries ago already understood that it's really interesting how much the law understands that the three areas in which I'll put it in simple terms the three areas in which you most need help are money sex and power the three areas in which you most need God to send you some road signs and tell you where the road is narrow are in money, sex, and power. Because those are the three things that we, A, enjoy, and B, tend to abuse. The three things that we, that as human beings, we are most drawn to use wrongly are how we handle wealth, how we handle sexual relationships, and how we handle power when it's given to us. And I've seen it hundreds of times over and over again, and I've only been alive a little while. So Foster's book is great. I came across these guys a while ago in, um, in a wonderful magazine article in the Catholic magazine tablet. Uh, these, uh, these guys come from a, a group called the Franciscan Friars of the Renewal. Have you heard of them, Steve? They are brilliant, mate. They came out of the Bronx in New York in 1980, and uh, they were a bunch of Franciscan Friars working amongst drug addicts and people. And they basically realized that if, you've, if you're working with someone who's been a drug addict and a sex addict and is completely messed up, has no structure in his life, a really good thing to do is to make him a monk for a while. Because actually, it's an intense experience of discipleship and growth. And their basic trick was that they took the classic uh, monastic vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. I will live on less or virtually nothing. I will uh, be chaste and I will accept uh, a leadership structure that, that deals with the issue of power. He, they took those three and they basically said to these guys, we want you to take these vows, but at this point you don't have to take them for the rest of your life. Why don't you take them for a year or two years or three years and journey with us? And then if you feel after that that you want to be released back into the world, that's absolutely fine. But let's use, and it's brilliant. And they've so they've recruited all these great guys. I came across them because I read this brilliant article by a, a, an Irish journalist who had met them in Limerick. And in Limerick, in uh, Southern Ireland, there's an estate called the Moyros Estate, which is officially designated the most troubled housing estate in Europe. This is an estate of joyriding and cars being burned and rampant drug sales. It's just a horrible, horrible place. And everybody finds it difficult. It is the, you know, it's not, I mean, there are wonderful people there and it's full of joy as well, but it has all these social problems. And these guys went to the, uh, they came over, they sent a team of monkey people over from New York. And they got the local authority to give them 
two council houses which they knocked into one and they created a kind of mini monastery in these council houses. So they have a place for prayer and space and then they live there together and they just love and serve the community. Now let me tell you what this guy, uh, Roy, uh, sorry, I've forgotten his name, Fitzpatrick, anyway. Roy Fitz, uh, Fitzgerald, yeah. Uh, he, ha- how he, same thing, how he came <laughs> to notice them. He's a, he's a local journalist in Limerick. He's, into, he's been writing on the complete uh, collapse of the Catholic Church in Ireland, the fact that with the scandal of child abuse and stuff, it's just horrific. So much so that many priests in Ireland no longer wear a collar because they get abused in public if they do. So they have to disguise themselves to go out into the streets. It's really, really tense and difficult time for the church. And he said he was walking through Limerick one day and he realized he was walking behind someone in a monk's habit. And he thought, this is interesting. This guy's obviously not afraid to be known as a, as a cleric or a monk or whatever. And then he said, I noticed something. I'm, this is exactly what he said. I noticed that all the people coming towards me, as they passed him, were breaking into smiles. And I thought, who is this guy? So he started investigating these people. And he discovered that the people of the Moiros estate love these guys. They love the fact that they've come there to serve them. And he tried to analyze that. And this is what he said. And I just found this such a powerful powerful statement he reflected on their monastic vows and he said this in an age of celebrity they practice humility in an age where everything is sexualized they vow chastity in an age of consumerism they vow poverty they walk through the world showing us that there is another way and I read that we use it in our training and I Christy and I sat down and said would that that could be said of a whole generation would that that could be said of our children growing up in our churches that they have dealt with power and they know how to be humble, that they've dealt with their sexuality and they know how to control their sexuality and not have their sexuality control them, that they're not victims of possessions and consumerism, that they've faced up to these issues of money, sex and power and dealt with them. And if that's not what we're doing in our churches, then we're not discipling. That's the bottom line. It's what Malachi said to the Jewish community. If you are not empowering one another to deal with the issues of money, sex, and power, then you are not being faithful to the covenant. Translate that into our time. If we are not empowering people to confront the issues of money, sex, and power, we are not discipling them. It doesn't matter how many worship events you go to. Well, it does matter, but you know what I'm saying. It doesn't matter how many CDs you buy. It doesn't matter how many of the songs you know the lyrics to or how many times your toes have tingled. If we are not dealing with money, sex, and power in our lives, and if we're not empowering our young people to deal with them, we are not discipling them in the way of Christ. Because the way of Christ is to deal with the fundamental issues that shape human lives and to show that there is another way. There is a way of peace and shalom and humility and service and love. So Richard Foster brilliantly identifies for us that those three issues are the key issues and when it comes to say let's look through the Jesus window at this it's not difficult because this is what Jesus's ministry was all about this is a wordle I don't know if it you know what a wordle is it's where you the on the internet you take the words of something and it gives you a map of how frequent this is a wordle of the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Mount is about money sex and power it's about, and what the Jesus that is, does in the Sermon on the Mount is he comes to the Jewish people and says, this is why God gave you the law, to make you people who understand how to deal with these things. And the purpose of the law was to help you get to the root of these issues. So before we leave, uh, before we walk away from here thinking that we have to listen directly to Malachi, we have to let Jesus translate Malachi for us and the rest of the Old Testament. In fact, Jesus quotes Malachi and is very much in the tradition of Malachi. But in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus takes these key issues. He says this, don't, under, don't misunderstand why I've come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. So if you ignore the least commandment and teach others to do the same, you'll be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who obeys God's law and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. But I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, 
you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he gives some specific examples. You've heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. If you curse someone, you're in danger of the fires of hell. So if you are presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar. Go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your sacrifice to God. What Jesus is doing here is taking the law and dealing with its roots and saying the law is the, deals with the behavior. I want to deal with the root. And he does exactly the same with divorce. Because he says you're in this, the conversation that was happening in Malachi's time is still happening 400 years later. What are the grounds on which I can divorce my wife? Is there room for it? Moses said we could issue a certificate. What are the criteria? Is it okay? And Jesus says every time you look lustfully at a woman, you commit adultery in your heart. What he's saying is not I want to make the law more difficult for you. He's saying I want to deal with your heart. I want to get to the root of this. He's actually saying, not just I want you to be strong enough not to divorce. He says, I want you to be strong enough not to commit adultery in your heart. It's what I've come for. And he describes it as fulfilling or accomplishing the purpose of the law. It's amazing. What he's basically saying, this is a, a, a partial analogy, but I hope it works for you. He's basically saying the law is like a seed. And you have two, three choices with a seed. You can keep it as a seed, the law. You can throw it away, as many people do, or you can plant it in good soil and see what grows. He wants the plant, not the seed. He wants that for which the law was intended. And that for which the law was intended was people walking in covenant faithfulness with God, enjoying God's presence and finding themselves transformed from the inside out. Jesus wants to deal with the root of the law. These are just some images uh, from a painter by Alexis, Alexa de los Reyes of roots. And obviously, what's lovely about these paintings is she's trying to say, don't mistake this. There's only a tiny bit visible at the top. It's the roots that matter. And Jesus takes every single issue of controversy in his day with the Pharisees and he drills it down and says, what's the root of that? What's the root in your heart? What's the root of divorce? It's lust in your heart and adultery. What's the root of these things? Let's get down to what really uh, is at stake here. And he wants to deal with the root. And essentially what Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount and in other places is that the basis of covenant love was that God wants to be our king and our ruler. And what the Jews said was give us rules. You see, rules are kingship without relationship. The rules, rules are where your kids come to you and say, I don't want to discuss this with, me, with you. Just tell me what I'm supposed to do and I'll do it. And you're like, that's not how it works. Because I want to be in relationship. We're going to talk about this. And God says to the people of Israel, I want to talk to you. I want to be in a covenant. I want to be married to you. I want us to discuss these things. And they're going, now just tell us the rules and we'll try and do the worst we can to try and do it. God, stop interfering in our lives. Just give us your rules and we'll see if we can keep you happy. God says, no, I don't want that. I'm not interested in that. I want to be with you. I want our relationship to be one of de de depth and covenant. I want you to come to me and ask me questions. I want to speak into you. I want to tabernacle with you. I want to be present with you. And Jesus comes and says, God never gave us rules. He gave us a ruler. That's why it's called the kingdom of God, not the republic of God. Because it has a king. It's about a relationship. And Jesus has said to the Jewish people, that's why he looks at Jerusalem and he weeps over Jerusalem. After hundreds of years of history, he weeps over Jerusalem and says, how often have I longed to gather you to me as a mother gathers her chicks? I just want to hold you to me. I want to be part of you and I want you to be part of me. It was never about rules. And if you live by rules, you lose sight of the ruler. If you live by rules, you lose sight of the king. And that is not a kingdom. The kingdom is relational. It's the relationship with God. And Jesus is saying, I want to get at your heart and I want to help you to overcome the issues in your heart. 
to give you one more analogy of how this might help you to understand. So why do we have all these laws? Why is all this Old Testament stuff about how we behave? Well, because in order to get to the place after the tragedy of what happened in the garden and after the evident loss of relationship, in order to get to the place where God could once more establish relationship, he had to keep the thing safe for a while. We had to build the airport for the jumbo jet to land on. So he had to create a nation into which the salvation could come. So the laws are all about the scaffolding. It's creating a structure within which grace can grow. I've got some lovely images. Well, I think they're nice of different. I suddenly discovered when I researched this that almost every cathedral in the world is covered in scaffolding. I don't know why. (laughs) This is Brussels. This is uh, America, Hartford, Connecticut. This is not all at the same time, obviously. Barcelona, Bury St. Edmunds. Big up Bury St. Edmunds scaffolding. But here's the point. No matter how complex or intricate or clever or impressive or effective it is, the scaffolding is not the cathedral. The law is not the perfect expression of God. That's why it doesn't say in Scripture that the law is the image of the invisible God. It says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Now we see him. The law was never intended to be the full expression of God. It was intended to be a structure within which a nation would grow up that the Savior would come to. It was intended to be a structure to make possible what Paul describes beautifully as the new law of life that has overcome the laws of sin and death. And in Jesus, there is a relationship that slowly but surely grows in us until we discover we don't need the rules anymore. We take the trainer wheels off the bicycle and we ride the thing and God applauds and says, you're learning. You're learning how to be like Jesus. You're learning how to respond without. And the way we do it is it's a bit like we, we face a situation and we, we're talking to someone and we, they're, they're not a Christian and it's difficult and we start to get a little bit angry and we think, what are we supposed to do? And we get the rule book out. Oh, hang on a second. When you are talking to a person and you find yourself getting angry, do that. That's not no good. If you have to reach for the rule book, it's because your heart hasn't been transformed. And Jesus is saying, I want to transform your heart. I want to get right in there to the root and transform you. It's what Pentecost is about. When Ezekiel said, there will be a day coming when I will put my spirit in you and I'll give you a new heart. And you won't have to ask your neighbor what the law is because the law will rise up in you. Obedience to God will rise up in you in a love relationship. And Jesus says, the scaffolding was great. It achieved its purpose. It's brilliant. Nobody's knocking it. Nobody's saying, we don't like scaffolding. We love scaffolding. But boy, oh boy, just think of that day at Bury St. Edmunds. They've spent millions raising money to restore this cathedral. And for months, the cathedral has been encased in scaffolding. And then the day comes and the scaffolding is taken away and you see the beauty of the cathedral. That's how God sees you. The cathedral God is building is you. That's what he's working on. And the law was all about getting you to a place where he could get to your heart. But what he wants is your heart and he wants you without scaffolding. He wants to point to you and say to the angels, look at this life. This is what a life looks like when the character of God is in its heart. This is what a life looks like when people live the law of love without referring to the rules. This is what it looks like when they take the scaffolding away and the true beauty of fellowship and obedience shows. God wants to be with us. He wants to be in us. He wants to shape our hearts. And what Jesus comes to say is, I have come to fulfill the purpose of the law. I have come to take down the scaffolding and reveal the beauty of the building. The purpose of the law was to deliver the nation to the place where the Messiah could come. And when the Messiah came and gave his life, he ascended to the Father and the Father said, now I can pour out my Holy Spirit on these people and I can put my character right in their hearts. And it's what comes out of your heart that Jesus is interested in, not your behavior. Do you want me to say that again, just in case you think you misheard it? It's what comes out of your heart that Jesus is interested in, not your behavior. Your behavior is of interest to God because it's like taking an apple from a tree, biting into it and going, whoa, that's bitter. 
Your behavior is the fruit of what's going on in you. So yes, God looks at your behavior and says, but he always comes back to you and he doesn't come and say, you've been a very naughty person. He comes to you and says, what does this mean? What does this selfishness mean about your heart? What does this cruelty to people mean about your heart? What does your inability to be faithful in relationships mean about your heart? What does your possessiveness mean about your heart? It means you're not free and I want you to be free. I want you to be free. I want your heart to be free. And that is God's project for us. Let me just uh, finish with my last word from... No, next one. Thank you. Last word from Malachi. This is a very powerful thing. It happens in the middle of this. It's the, it's the courtroom, accusation, counter-accusation, the people and God in dialogue. And Malachi, God says to Malachi, uh, God says through Malachi, return to me and I'll return to you. And then the people say this, really interesting. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of heaven armies. But you ask, how can we return when we've never gone away? Three verses earlier, chapter three, verse six, Malachi says, on behalf of God, I, the Lord, do not change. And then the people say, but we haven't changed. We're still doing what we've always done. So what's your issue, God? The issue is, it's not about just doing what we've always done. It's about knowing where God is moving and relating to him. And the group of people who say, but we haven't changed, are like the fishermen who a hundred years after the coastline has moved 50 miles west are still sitting there with their boats waiting for the tide to come in. God says, I didn't create you to be static and unmoving. I created you to go where I'm going and move with me. And if there is a distance between you and me, God says, I have not moved. It's not me that's moved. And our problem is we don't think we need to repent because we don't think we've wandered. But we have drifted. And we've drifted so subtly that we don't even count it. We don't think we're prodigals who've run off from God, but we have drifted. We've drifted into legalism. We've drifted into being controlled by our possessions. We've drifted into being soft on sexual misdemeanors. We've drifted into, into abusing power. We've drifted into, just to use one word that kind of captures it all, comfort. We've drifted into being comfortable. And God says, return to me. And we're like, we haven't moved, God. We're still faithful we're good Anglo-Baptist, Catho-Methodist people. <laughs> we are faithful to our roots. And God says, yes, and your roots are strangling you. Because God doesn't want us to be faithful to our denominational roots. He doesn't want to be faithful to our structures. He doesn't want to be faithful to decisions that were made 100 years ago. He wants us to be faithful to him. He wants our hearts. He wants our love. He wants our passion. He wants us to wake up in the morning and say, God, what should we do today? What are you doing today, God? How can I join you? And sometimes we think we haven't moved, but there's been a drift. We have to be willing to say, God, if you're saying there's a distance, I want to overcome that distance. I want to return to that place. I better stop there, Steve, or we will be here all afternoon, mate. Go for it. Jason.